Hey, I'm Alan McGuire. And I'm Sarah Griffin. And this is Juvenalia, a podcast where we talk to an interesting person about a bit of pop culture that was important to them when they were young. Our guest today is the director of Museum of Literature Ireland, Simon O'Connor. Welcome to the show. Hey, Alan. Hey, Sarah. Welcome. You Very excited. have a, a big old topic that a lot of people wanted to do, but you beat them to it. What is I know, it? which is a really terrifying thing, you know, because like who on earth is, uh, who on earth is permitted to talk about Twin Peaks, you know? Certainly not me. I have friends who are going to kill me when they find out when they find out <laughs> I have to do this. <laughs> so uh, I guess we'll start when, like, when did you start watching it? When, when did it come into your life? So, I mean, I was 15 years of age, um, you know, so it was kind of, it's like bang on the nose of, uh, of my teen years. And I was, I would have been, you know, I would have been like a goth, and going to like, you know, the kind of disco on a Friday night and this came out and it was like, I mean, it was manna from heaven, you know, uh, at, at, at that point in time in, in my life. And actually all my friends' lives, I mean, we used to watch it every week in my friend's Ben on house. And I think, it was, you know, I think his poor mum probably didn't know what the hell was going on, but we were all just sitting around every week waiting to find out um, what was going on. But it was just so, it was a... Uh, it was just, it was, it was so surreal and so abstract and so beautiful and so spooky. And when all the paranormal gear started happening as well, it was like, it just felt like it was really made for, it was really made for us, you know, um, for, for, for kind of, I mean, I have no idea what adults thought about it at the time. Certainly for, as, as a teen, it was just, um, it was incredible, you know. That sense of like it belonging to you is really interesting as well, like, because, it truly isn't. I've, I, I came upon it when I was 15 as well, but by a totally different way, um, yeah, like years after it had gone off the television. But that idea of not knowing what adults thought about it and it just belonging to you is so rare. It's such a rare sensation in terms of how people consume television, you know. It's very, Twin Peaks has a very private feel to it. And it definitely wasn't made for teenagers, but it also speaks so perfectly to teenagers in a way that is kind of, really hard to nail down it's very transgressive and it's very violent and it's very very dark it's it hinges on a deeply deeply bleak upsetting premise that like i don't think we would see in contemporary television it would be like sanitized out somehow you know Mm. yeah yeah it's um yeah i mean it is because on like on one level it is actually just a it's like it's a high school like it's a it's a high school series right um uh but but just you know but turns on its head. It's all of the things that, like, say, our parents were watching at the time, like Falcon Crest and uh, and, and Dynasty and Dallas, Dynasty. Um, in particular. Like, you know, it's like it's kind of coming out of that as well. Um, like, it's coming. I mean, like, there's. I think there's like total Falcon Crest aesthetics going on in Twin Peaks. You know, um, but, uh, it's very slow. It's very slow. It, it, yeah, like um, no. Yeah, so it was so it, it it had all of these kind of ingredients that we're all really familiar with, but then it kind of just like started mushing them all up into this nightmare, and it felt really long form in a way that like you know soap operas like just weren't operating like that because it was, I mean I think that's what he kind of wanted to do at the start, right? He wanted to create a kind of like his own soap opera, like a dark soap. Yeah, um, but I suppose then because they kind of because it was a whodunit. Uh, 
I, I think that kind of created problems for them. But um, because when they, you know, when they wrapped it up, I think that was, you know, that was it. But funnily enough, for me, um, and I'm probably one of the few people like I actually think then season two, uh, like I adore season two. Um, I yeah, adore how mental how mental it got. Um, you know, it was years, years, years later when I when I read that uh, that Lynch really disliked season two. Um, but I didn't care, you know. Yeah. yeah. The hassle I had to get to to get my hands on a copy of the DVDs of season two was like it was a teenage saga in itself. Like my teenage boyfriend and I watched Twin Peaks a lot. I was really into it and I sort of brought it to him as this deeply personal offering. Like, here is this weird 90s murder show that I watch. You know, I was 16 or 15 and it only has six episodes. And I don't know who killed Laura Palmer. I don't know. I have no concept of who killed her. I don't. I was so lost. He on eBay purchased a bootleg Spanish language dub of the full season <laughs> right for 300 euros unthinkable. Oh, yeah. unthinkable quantities of money right if you think mm. about how part we were all working part-time like none of us had anything and uh you could do a little trick with your dvd player where you could take off the dub and switch it back into english um, so for Christmas, he got me the box set, um, which included all the little log lady introductions. So I finally after and I would say I watched that first season when I was 15 and then it would have been 18 months before I got to see who killed Laura Palmer. Yeah. You know? Wow. That's real. I mean, that's that's real commitment. I remember hearing now, I mean, we were talking around about like time going weird. I can't remember when this was, but there was a, a, a friend of mine um, who's also a huge Twin Peaks fan, also called Simon, actually. And he, he, um, I remember him telling me it was like a few years back that it had come out as a kind of a, as a you know, a gold edition DVD box set, the second season. But it, I mean, I it's been, one, yeah. yeah, it's been, I mean, it's been hard to watch. It's been hard to get your hands on for a long time. I mean, it's you know, uh, um, but uh, but no, I like I I just loved where it went. Um, I loved. Uh, I mean, all of. The, all of the all of those characters and relationships that they created, but I mean, they just kind of let us wander. It was like taking a line for a walk, you know. Um, yeah. uh, and, uh, and I think he came in then at the end, didn't he? Lynch came in to kind of wrap it up uh, on the final episode of season two, um, which is terrifying. Which is absolutely terrifying. It's a horrifying ending. Like yeah. it's really upsetting. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and uh, and then recently, actually, I kind of because I hadn't watched it, in a, I hadn't watched it in a long time. I watched um, I watched Firewalk with Me again, and um, again, right? So like you know, I always I always end up having the wrong opinion. Like when that came out, I thought it was a real masterpiece. <laughs> I mean, people hate uh, it. People hate yeah, it. Yeah, it. people really yeah. hate it. And uh, and and I watched it again recently. Um, it's probably the first time in like you know a good fifteen years, and uh, and I was just remind. I mean, my God, like it is so. It is so dark. It is so bleak. It's the black core of that entire series of that film. Yeah, you know, it, it feels very, very transgressive as a piece of work. There's lots of offshoot texts around Twin Peaks that I sort of set about eBay collecting as a teenager. So I have the cassette of Cooper's Diaries and the book, the original paperback books of mm -hmm. Cooper's Diaries and Laura's Diary. Mm. So, which is written by Jennifer Lynch, who's David yeah. Lynch's daughter. And that's, you want bleak. Yeah. Like, some bleak shit. 
And Firewalk with me always felt very distended, you know, because it it, it is such a, a horrible film. It it focuses largely on um uh, the last seven days of Laura Palmer's life before she's murdered. I'm so sorry. We never told that. We we didn't tell. I, I assume if you were listening to this episode, listener, that you know what you're, you 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 clicked on it because you know what Twin Peaks is. It's a TV show about a murder of a prom um, prom queen, local sweetheart Laura Palmer, and the movie, the offshoot movie, focuses on the last seven days of her life, which are terrible. Yeah, they're just terrible. She's had a yeah. terrible. Time. In the history of final seven days of lives, it's kind of up there. Yeah. It's really up there, like, and in a very quiet domestic way as well. Like the horror is very much screaming in living rooms and, um, yeah, marital she, marital breakdown. Yeah, and she's yeah. she's very notably possessed throughout as well. Like she has these horrible shifts um, in character throughout it. It's brilliant, uh, but it. it it's also mad and I can see why it was panned because it's mad. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the, the, but, but you know, the way, I mean, we'll eventually start talking about season three, but, but I mean, but the way that, uh, like the freedom that he gave himself then to build in the story in advance of the murder is really interesting. And the kind of all of that stuff about the blue rose coming up and the, you know, the ring and Teresa Banks and the Chris Isaacs and David Bowie. Like, I mean, it is, yeah, David Lord, Bowie, that, you know, yeah. just vibing around. Uh, yeah. he, he hints at this wider world in these lovely, like the blue rose and the ring. And he, it's like, it's like him saying, there is a bigger story that I have not told you and I refuse to tell you goodbye. Mm. And it, it's delightful in that way, you know? Yeah. It's full of really like overt symbolism in a way that you just don't really see as much, yeah. you know? Yeah, it's um, it's, and it's also, I mean, it's like a frame by frame, gorgeous film as well, and uh, and and um, and Cheryl Lee, I mean, you know, you know, she doesn't really get much of an innings as an actress uh, in season one and two. I mean, it's kind of really staged, but I mean, the whole thing is her movie, and she's really incredible. These prolonged kind of static moments of CEO of the middle distance. She's just, (laughs) she's just traumatized. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. so traumatized yeah yeah like, there's God proper th- like you know Japanese no theater silent screens going on it's, it's just it's, blank yeah. and when we see what Lynch does with her character in season three and I, I know Alan has only seen the first six episodes so spoilers abound yeah I've only seen season one so I'm being so completely silent here so yeah I'm, yeah do you know I'm Joker? Listening. Uh, yes no I do I read the Wikipedia page today yeah. so I do know yeah because when you said you'd only seen the yeah. first season, I was like, I was obsessed with Twin Peaks for like nearly two years before I saw the whole thing. So I feel like the first mm. season is enough to really like. Oh, I think yeah, the the vibe of it's like nailed down. Yeah, and the know, world it seems like that's the main bit of Twin Peaks is mm. is those first eight episodes. It's huge, isn't it? It's huge. Yeah, yeah. The third season, which came out in two thousand seventeen, I want to say, um, is really execution of concept. It's and it gives her time to shine as well, you know, when we see her in her adulthood as well. Yeah. And um it's uh also it's 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 been did you watch it in the end? Or you were you were we spoke about this before and you were sort of, oh dear, not really sure about watching it. Me. Because, yeah, like yeah. yeah, yeah. And actually and funnily enough, my friend Simon that I mentioned earlier on, not my doppelganger, uh, mm. but Simon was uh, 
Simon was um, had been saying to me since it came out, you have to watch it. You have to watch it. You have to like find a hotel somewhere for like four days and just watch it on your own. <laughs> yeah. And and funnily enough, in the in the lockdown, it was the perfect opportunity, and I watched it over I think about five nights, and yeah. it had. I mean, it it actually had. It was like an amplified version of the effect of the the second season. I found it was like. Um, I don't want this to end. I actually want to go back and start watching it immediately again. Um, it is just, it was exceptional. It was, I would easily say it farts past the first two seasons um, and is like, it's just one of the most incredible uh, TV, like things that have ever been attempted as a TV series of the form, you know, it's just, it's really, really uh, yeah. ambitious, you know, and I wouldn't have trusted it in anybody else's hands, you know. I feel like if because it was him coming back and doing it, you're like, you know what? He absolutely knows what he's doing, and he will fulfill this. David Lynch will fulfill this story while also refusing to tell us anything, but into intoning and intuiting enough about this landscape that you feel like you are resolved by it. So, Laura, so tying it back to Fire Walk with me, which I think it has a lot more in common with. Mm, yeah completely um, than a lot of the other work is that it looks at Laura the story is of this um I guess she's sort of a sacrificial figure Laura Palmer right mm. like she's bait for spirits right she's so pure yeah. and so good that she pulls out all of these dark spirits who are like bent on corrupting her you mm. know and yeah. that's her role nearly you know yeah, there's that moment. Um, there's that moment in the kind of uh, slightly other dimension that's connected to the Black Lodge dimension in some way, um, and it's and it's around the time that that orb is created that contains Bob as this kind of scene. Yeah, there's this evil. whole orb episode. It's fantastic. <laughs> and then, and then the other orb. Abstract images. David Bowie is a kettle. It's yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's remarkable. But then she, but then, yeah, you're right. Like Laura occurs as an mm. orb as well, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but this is all coming out of like, you know, a kind of a nuclear bomb test explosion. That sequence is New Mexico. so off the chain. It's about, I think it's like nine minutes long in yeah. one of the episodes season three. And the only sound is kind of the low Angelo Badalamenti ominous whooshing. And it's about nine minutes of just cloud mm. and like, explosions it's very long and very drawn out it's it's really ambitious like it's yeah this, this, it, it really took me by surprise because it's um the entire thing is in the entire episodes in black and white and uh it's the eighth it's the eighth episode of of season three and uh and it begins with this and um, well, the episode doesn't but 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 anyway this kind of sequence begins with this um test nuclear detonation in the 1950s i think it is or some, some something like that in, in new mexico and uh, and the camera is just kind of like zooming in on the explosion, and then goes inside the explosion, and uh, and the the, the 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 soundtrack in the background is actually this um, kind of uh, extremely well known um, uh, chromatic symphony um, by a, a composer named Christoph Penderecki, and it's called. Oh, it's the not, but it's not no, 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 and it's and and the piece is called Trinity for the Victims of Hiroshima. Um, so it's like it was this kind of really like groundbreaking piece of music that that Penderecki wrote um, in the kind of like second half of twentieth century, and um, so that's going all the way through while it's just this kind of like fire and explosions and it's 
like I didn't want to it's the kind of thing that you would stumble upon in the back room of a modern art museum you know when you just accidentally walk into a darkened room off of the main thoroughfare of an art museum and you're like oh I guess we're just looking at some images and music now <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. Yeah. it's unabashedly like this is an art bit we're doing so you're yeah. just gonna have to sit down and observe <laughs> sit down there and watch, watch the fire um mm. but then all of these kind of guys that come out of it all of these kind of kind of dirty um men yeah, uh the they call it the woodsmen or something like woodsmen. that yeah uh it's just kind of wild I and mean, it's wild you know what? um wild well, and largely I mean, explained like it's it's yeah. the mythos behind the very small crime story that we start with is just it's so it's so fun do you know because it's yeah. so unpredictable and it's so um like without limit you know yeah i felt it was kind of as well it was really like um it was like it was like kind of an atomic uh kind of level engagement with the idea of good and evil you know um that he that he's basically saying like you know out of this kind of out of this uh and i don't go in for interpreting lynch much really at all you know <laughs> i just try and let it all just, like, yeah. just try and like take a big bath in it but uh but but it did feel to me like you know it's, it's like you know um human beings kind of create this power and then and then the power has such potential for evil that it kind of creates this binary out of itself and that spills out into this town as this really weird disgusting kind of darkness um that's these men asking asking you for a light and then killing you like you know and like and like you know hypnotizing people and you know setting places on fire and then broadcasting their voices over the local radio broadcasting and, stuff is super weird like yeah. it's a, the third season is such a strange piece of art and it does also contain those soap opera moments like what happened to audrey i think we should probably talk a bit about audrey especially given that we both came to this show as teenagers the like relentless impact that Cheryl and Fenn probably had on both of us. She's such a yeah. minor, she isn't, she's a B character in the story, but she's just such a visually iconic character. And what happens to her in the long run is really, really compelling as well. Yeah, I was I was quite confused by the kind of, I was quite confused by the, uh, by the, by the way he treated her character in the third season. Um, I wasn't confused by her in season one when I was 15 <laughs> years away. <laughs> I was pretty sure. I was pretty sure about one thing. Yeah. 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 I mean, that was like, it was so funny. And I think I was telling you, Sarah, before, like, I mean, I actually had, like, like this will tell you, like, I had a, you know, I had a shrine to Sherilyn Fenn in, in, in my, uh, in my bedroom. <laughs> Sorry <laughs> completely, to completely obsessed with her. Like, I remember when, um, when I was like, when I was younger, like, you know, I mean, and God almighty, uh, it makes me feel so middle-aged, but, you know, sometimes if you wanted to go do serious record shopping, like, you, you, you have to go over to, to England, you have to go to London, like, um, I mean, it was great stuff here, but there were just things that would just not make it onto this island, and you'd have to go over there, and you'd catch a few gigs while you were there, because there was bands that just would never play over here. Um, but also in these record shops in, in, in London, I remember they would have, like, all of these, it was a great place for getting, like, um, photographs and postcards so uh so they used to have all the kind of like press photographs of actors and actresses and things so like you get these like great uh i got it just got a great sherilyn fan hall one time on a trip to london when i was a teenager you know and then uh and then when i moved i think when i moved out of my 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 folks house i think the shrine kind of remained in my brother's room for a while 
not to check with him. Rightly so. Like yeah. she's a work of art. Why would you take her yeah. off the wall? Like yeah. Yeah. I lost so much eyebrow to trying to like emulate <laughs> those points that she had. Like that's were, gen- that's a genetic point. You can't pluck around a point like that. Yeah, they were very serious eyebrows. To be fair, yeah. but I mean, but that was the other thing as well. I mean, like I think the. You know the, the the female the female characters of of Twin Peaks were like a they were another kind of new thing. You know, like they were these yeah. they were these you know in TV they were these really kind of they weren't just unusual they weren't I mean they were unusual characters those female characters but they were all there's loads of them there's, there's loads, loads of them and they're all yeah they're all really, like even when you watch it now it's still noticeable how many female and they all are really yeah. different like Nadine. Like yeah. Nadine and her eye patch, you know, <laughs> poor Nadine, Jesus Christ. And then like Shelly, oh my God, like uh, Lucy, like there are so many different stories happening to these women. Like the, you see all these different shades of womanhood, even though like, you know, it's of its time in 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 certain ways. But you do get to see gradients of different kinds of people's lives, you know, mm-hmm. which... Like it was pretty rich. Like it felt good. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um. But yeah, it was true. So I mean, I, I like I do. I do kind of remember. I hope it wasn't just me, but I do remember like a lot of the world being obsessed with, with the kind of whole female cast in Twin Peaks as well. And then and then on the male side, you know, I mean, so my kids are actually like right now sitting in the sitting room watching X-Files, right? And my, like my eldest kid is 12 and they've become really obsessed with the X-Files. And, uh, and she asked me the other day, she was like, oh, how do you, how do you join the FBI, right? <laughs> oh, and, and, and I, remember, I remembered that kind of thing of like the allure of the FBI. But the allure of the FBI, right, for, for kind of young people, I think in, te- in televisual terms came out of Twin Peaks. Um, and 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 it was and it was the creation of this kind of um, of this saint basically, uh, you know. Saint also, Dale Cooper, the, yeah. Saint Dale Cooper, and uh, in the Pacific Northwest, which is where all of the movies that we liked as we were kids were set as well. Dreamy and, and foggy. Yeah. yeah, and uh, and 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 then it was just like I mean, how much more interesting and wonderful a job could you have hanging around, eating donuts, talking about Navajo Indian rituals? Uh, and that kind of and everyone you know. in the town loves you because you're here to save the day. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, uh, and like, I guess the version of that is, is being like a beloved outsider and being the smartest person in the room, right? Mm-hmm. And being screwed into something, you know? Yeah. Like, I cannot, how exciting to be 12 and watching the X Files for the first yeah. time. But, but that I'm was... rewatching X Files at the moment. Uh, and it's the first time I've watched it since watching Twin Peaks. I'm like, oh, this wouldn't exist without Twin Peaks, probably. Yeah, Sister the, the whole, the whole like first section of the X Files is set up in the Pacific Northwest as well. That whole pilot episode, yeah, is a Pacific Northwest uh, weird body mystery. You know, yeah, it's, um, it's very, and it's obviously David Duchovny linking both. So yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and 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 that's the thing. It's like that came out of it. Like the Men in Black thing came out of mm-hmm. it as well, and um, all of that. Yeah, so. Uh, it's left a lot of weird legacies you know like I tried to watch Riverdale which I had a really hard time with because I am mm. like I I hate discovering I'm too old to enjoy something yeah I couldn't get through it 
I just I simply can't. Like yeah, I, yeah no, I watched season one and then jumped. I, I hope it yeah. leads some Gen yeah. Z kids to Twin Peaks ultimately. Do you know? <laughs> like yeah. it, because it is it's like a it's like Twin Peaks in drag, do you know? Where you're like, mm. I see that you're doing Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. I can do this for one episode. I need you to go further with this. I need you to commit to it rather than kind of like moving towards a clownishness of it. Do you know? It it lacks mm-hmm. any kind of nuance. Um, yeah. But visually, it's obviously like it's a prayer, you know, like we can mm. still do this. We can still be weird. It's like, no, you truly yeah. can't. Not in, you have to commit to a lot more ambiguity and you have to commit to um, risk. And I didn't feel that Riverdale was risky at all. I felt like it was quite weirdly. Um, no, I only watched kind of the first season, but I felt it was kind of like not chased, but like sanitized or something i was just not able for it anyway um, yeah there's definitely nothing sanitized about twin peaks you know no but i think that's no. what he's playing with as well like i mean that's and that's is, is, you know such a big thing for him anyway is 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 what what's above what's below you know uh yeah and, and, and how they kind of interrelate and intertwine but that but um i mean that was the thing about uh, uh, like looking at firewalk with me again it was like you know really like oh dear this is you know i'd forgotten how just how bleak the thing is uh, and I was remembering then about the diary as well it was like of course yeah because when Jennifer Lynch wrote the diary like diary starts when she's really young doesn't it like, yeah the diary yeah. starts when she's fully a child so it yeah. is and there's lots of torn out passages and half written things as a visual text it's very interesting to look at yeah. because it is in conversation with an external force at times so it is weirdly po- like is a spin-off novel of a television series which aired 20 years ago. Okay, I'm not going to go too hard. Equally, it's very postmodern. Yeah. You know, in, in both its tone and its presentation, it's a weird little book, but it does leave you feeling kind of sick. You know, it, mm. it, it, it is absolutely from the perspective of a of a teenage slash prepubescent girl who's being sexually abused by her father. Yeah. And there's less ambiguity about that in the book and uh it's it is ambiguous but it's also not it's very it's a i was very impacted by it when i read it i thought it was a bad time but i also read it about 15 times i just kept reading you know (laughs) every time i went back to it it would feel less bad nope felt bad every time every every time time. um i know i never got to i never got to listen to the 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 cooper cassettes though yeah, they're a delight. They are a delight. And they come in a gorgeous cardboard kind of like tape box off. plastic on the inside. And Colin McLaughlin obviously record like they're, I think they're about like 25 minutes total, like 15 minutes aside at a push. But it's it's nice extra bits and pieces. Yeah. Let's go back and I'm sure they're available on YouTube now. Like I'm sure they've been ripped. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean, the, 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 when you mentioned actually as well, the kind of sacrificial component, um, just thinking back to that uh, about about Laura, I mean, I thought there was, like he kind of, he created these kind of, like, I mean, obviously moments of like kind of unbelievable darkness in, in throughout the whole the, the series and the, all the series in the film. Um, but then these kind of gorgeous moments of light as well, you know, like, I mean, that's kind of at the end of Firewalk with me when the angel reappears to her when she's sitting in the Black Lodge, kind of, and she's just like kind of, and she's doing that thing, like, you know, that kind of tour de force bit of acting where she's just like for five minutes before the credits, she's just laughing and crying at the same time in slow motion. Um, but then when he kind of, when he goes in, um, Alan, you're going to close your, you're going to 
cover your ears. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but then, but then in the forest, then when he kind of, kind of reinsert, when he kind of gets to insert himself in season three into the point um, where he can kind of alter the outcome of her, of her, of her life, you know, it's like I, I, I just got really kind of elated looking yeah. at that. I just like, oh my god, like, this, yeah, you know, and it was like he's saving her, you know, like Saint Coop is like finally gets to save her like this whole kind of cosmic mechanism you know that and then of course like a redemptive force to retrieve her from this mm, you know? yeah 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 like it's a i found the visual of laura which we i guess we see a lot like in pop culture now like it's something that it's my reaction gift to almost everything is laura palmer sitting in a chair smiling terrifyingly or crying <laughs> um laura palmer sitting in the chair in the red room uh, with her fabulous perm and her black dress sort of looking into the middle distance is this really visually striking because you're right because it's sublime acting because often she's laughing and crying at once like she she contains a lot as a figure in that moment you know and mm. um, and in the third season they do something really interesting with that where they elevate it into this her taking off her own face and past her face that there's this deep kind of bright chasm you know and they do that with her mother as well so like one mm. of those things that kind of crawls out of a tv show it's not a meme but again it's well known as a moment in television is laura palmer's mother sarah palmer um just screaming in the living room just screaming because she knows what has she knows that her daughter is dead but she also somewhere knows why her daughter is dead and knows who did it and I find that like the ancillary cast around Laura and like even Donna and Bobby and the people who we follow through the story, like it's the wider ensemble that bring a lot of the horror I find mm. and bring a lot of the supernatural because the primary cast who is like Laura, who's not around, Donna, who's her, <laughs> Lara Flynn Boyle, God love her, um, and James Hurley, who is, agonizing to watch at every juncture um <laughs> yeah. bobby who's not bobby who's gorgeous um oh, shelly uh they, you know they sort of an ensemble but then there's an external ensemble who are all more supernatural than that kind of primary cast and i'm obsessed yeah. with sarah palmer i think she is a devastating character like yeah. i think she's the most the most brilliant tragic characters in in, in television yeah, you know. and actually the way season the way we find her in season three as well is like is just so grim. It's just been going all the way down, you know. Um, yeah. There's uh, no redemption the for Sarah Palmer. There's no yeah. redemption. Like, and she does the same thing when we meet her in the line. She's like in the grocery store buying like Fireball tequila or something awful, and yeah. um, she takes her face off as well in the line, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah, I think she does, yeah. And there's this, uh, I don't know, I feel like when David Lynch is like, when David Lynch is at it, he sure is at it, you know? <laughs> like, he is out here to make you feel very, very upset um, about these women. He doesn't do a lot of objectifying them, you know? Not really. But yeah. they are they are sexual and they are complicated, you know? Like, yeah. I, I, love, I love Lynch's women. Like, I love them. Yeah, there was, like, I mean, it's... Like it's funny because I was, I, there was, um, there was, there's a scene and there's a scene in, uh, in Firewalk with me where 
where Laura's on the phone and she's getting ready to go out basically for like basically for a, a prostitution gig. Yeah. And, uh, and she's kind of getting changed into the kind of sexy gear on the bed, but she's also really, really stoned. And she's yeah. on the phone to, um, I think she's on, I think she's not, she's, I think yeah. she's on the phone to, is she on the phone to Bobby or James? I can't remember. Anyway. And, um, but the whole thing, rather than fo- like another director would be focusing on what she looks like. But Lynch is focusing on the fact that she keeps putting the phone upside down with a cigarette in her mouth. And she kind of can't, you know, and she can't get the suspenders Doing on. Doing too much. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of, it's interesting. Like, yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't objectify at all. I mean, and when he, and, and when you think he is, there's something else going on. He's kind of. There's always a clumsiness or like, uh, there's something like, like not wrong, but there's something amiss in the scene that kind of makes it feel less seedy because it, it as a series does handle underage prostitution, drug use, traffic, like trafficking, I guess you could call it with one eyed jacks. Like yeah, it is, that's what it is there's yeah. dark shit going on, you know, but yeah. it's not gazy, you know, mm. it, he doesn't really hold people's jawlines or collarbones. Like for Sherilyn Fenn emerging as this um, remarkable sex symbol, like at, at, at this point, a classic sex symbol. She kind of mostly just wears a jumper and a skirt, except for that minute where she's like wearing fancy knickers in the casino. And at that point she's desexualized by horror, you know? Yeah, because her dad was coming in, yeah. Because she's about to have to have sex with her dad while wearing a cat mask. <laughs> Horrific, like abs, but also portrayed in such a surreal way that you're sort of separated from the horror. I don't know, it's mm. it's a... It's a good execution, I think, of a of a horrific scene. Yeah. Um, unnecessary, you know. Mm, the thing with the faces as well is kind of interesting because that crops up that crops up quite a bit with the um uh with the little boy, you know, the little boy and the old lady and the little the boy. Nephew. The nephew. <laughs> the nephew. Yeah. That, who has the, the the white mask with the kind of pointy nose. And he's always, you know, taking that off and on occasion you kind of see other things. Behind us, the, the 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 stuff they're eating, that kind of creamy corn. Garmin Bosia. Garmin Bosia. Yeah. a made up word for something that is so again in in Lynch's sort of trademark body horror like obsession with the object. Like where I would criticize Lynch largely is to do with his like fixation on disabled bodies for horror and also like the gleaming whiteness. Like he just no, just no people of color except like Lieutenant Hawk, you know, in <laughs> Twin Peaks. Like it's pretty, mm. but yeah. he. Um, he's really great at the grotesque. So this substance moves through the story, uh, this Garmin Bosia, which is pain and sorrow. And it manifests in the form of creamed, canned, like corn. And it's disgusting. And you see these sequences of people eating it off of tables. And later into the second season that there, there is this grandmother and her, her, or this old lady and her nephew, who is training to be a magician. Isn't that it? Mm, Yeah. yeah. And he wears a terrifying mask. So there's a lot of people taking their faces on and off, kind of scattered throughout. Mm. Yeah, and and the the kind of, I mean, that's the other thing as well. Is like you know, watching season three, it was, uh, in a way, actually, it's not kind of dissimilar to 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 what they were doing with Fargo, with the with the with the, the TV series Fargo, where they're, it's like they're kind of taking the core ingredients and the core symbolism, and then they're just turning it into other stories that feel familiar, even though they're completely new. So like with, with, with in Twin Peaks season three, it was like, you know, there are all of these little ricochets um, of symbolism and imagery um, like that, like the face thing, like um, like the James Hurley character. And James has always been cool. Like, yeah. was he? 
but, really? but but then like Michael Sierra turns up as this oh, kind of God. as this kind of young this kind of new young kind of James Hurley ish type Marlon Brando kid. Michael Sierra delivers a monologue that is what a monologue. Like long. He is the offspring of the beloved Lucy and like and Andy. poor Andy, poor Andy, who just cries when he sees dead bodies. Uh, and they had a sort of a very, very soapy romantic situation, um, which was kind of unresolved in the first two seasons. But when we see them again, they're happily together with like a grown ass son who is perfectly cast as Michael Sarah. <laughs> and he delivers this mad like Marlon Brando y speech. Isn't his name Brando? Does he have a doesn't he have a name? Is like his name Brando? Maybe his name I gotta is look at his name. He has, <laughs> he has a really, really funny name. Sorry, you keep Alan. talking and I look it up. I'm, yeah, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> the official name. But, 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 but he even has like he even has Brando's hat from uh, Wally Brando. That is his name. That's it. Yeah, Wally, Wally Brando. Brando. Yeah. Yeah, he has the hat and everything. He's just yeah. and he delivers and he delivers this card kind of beach philosophical kind of instruction to the sheriff who's just standing there kind of humoring him. <laughs> like it goes on for like 10 minutes. It's really, really long. It's brilliant. Yeah. Like there's, mo- there's room for play in Twin Peaks, which I think is really, really important. Like it's a, it's got space for silliness within the darkness of it. Mm. And like really, like the surrealism isn't always just people taking their faces off and like creamed corn coming out of tabletops. It's not always that far it's often just domestic moments and like silly interactions that people have mm. you know i was i was really so i was really surprised actually in season three at how much because i didn't kind of fully remember the humor yeah of 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 you know of, of season two so kind of so the humor then in season three really took me by surprise and um, but i loved it like the kind of the slapstick and the kind of the, the, the character of Dougie and and what Dougie. he and what he allows Dougie to do and become while he's kind of possessed by this kind of vegetative um Cooper. You know? So and, Alan, and, what happens is in the third season we meet Dale Cooper again, but not as we know him. He arrives back from a journey through the Black Lodge into a body of technically a Dale Cooper, but he's in somebody else's life who's a sales guy called Dougie who lives in Las Vegas and he can't speak. He kind of can only like 11 from Stranger Things style can only kind of say a couple of words at a time. And his Mm. wife is Naomi Watts, who just is just like, oh, Dougie, you know, here, help me. Let me help you put your shoes on, you know, and just treats it like an adult baby. So let's this kind of spectre move through his life without ever questioning that his behavior is in some way wrong, mm. you know? Even though he's almost comically playing somebody who is trapped inside of a body that is his, but he's, he's like at a distance from his own movements. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's a very, um, mm. it's a really way of, of basically telling the audience to fuck off. Like, oh, you wanted more Dale Cooper? Yeah, yeah. But then, but then you know, Cooper kind of like Cooper basically saves Dougie's life, though. That's the yeah. that's the other thing that kind of happened, like that by kind of um, because Dougie was a little bit dodgy 
you know, um, before yeah. he gets possessed by Cooper. So he's uh, yeah. So uh, and 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 then when they drag in the the Mitchum, is it the Mitchum, the Mitchum brothers, the gangsters in Vegas, and the chorus um, girls, so yeah. Weird. So it's uh, and they're just thrilled with this guy, you know, and they see him as this really good guy, and they're totally enamored of his goodness, and they're just following him around, trying to give him gifts. <laughs> Like, this is it's so, so good, and Cooper's so good. innate goodness. Yeah, is what do. yeah. But I, but I did, I did love like you know Lynch was obviously. I mean, and he was given so much free reign. Isn't that the thing? Like he just he has he had all the time in the world. They just said like whatever amount of episodes it takes, that's what it's going to take. And he just let the whole thing run out. Like it's brilliant. Um, uh, he gives himself all this freedom with those characters, and he and he plays with them, and you know he plays with the chorus girls, he plays with all the imagery, um, you know, and the, I mean, and as well, I was annoyed initially watching uh, initially watching the third uh, season because it was shot in digital, so it was like, oh Jesus, it's yeah, like it was very it's really sharp. sharp and it's glaring, and uh, because you know the season one and two is so vaseline, you know, it's so kind of soft and and, uh, and smoky and was kind of talking about the Falcon Crest aesthetic, you know, like which is a bunch of words I never thought I'd put together. Um, but like, you know, there's kind of colour schemes that are going on in Twin Peaks that are cut, you know, the, that are soap opera colour schemes. Yeah, American that dark schemes. red, the dark green, the greys, like yeah. the black and white, like it's very, so much has crawled out of it that you wouldn't expect. Yeah. Oh, you came to it as an adult, right? You didn't watch it when you were younger at all, did you? No, yeah, only in the last couple of years, yeah. So as an adult it's, who has experienced it via pop culture, what did you think when you came to it as a text? It's, the darkness of it has not gone into into pop culture mainstream, like impression of it at all. It's Basically, The Simpsons, Red Room, and a man dancing with a horse under a <laughs> yeah. is what everybody thinks of for, for Twin Peaks if they haven't seen it. Yeah, and it's so dark. Like if yeah. like you've, we've, we've, if you haven't seen it, the things we're talking about, you would not associate them with what you think Twin Peaks is. Yeah, the the music in it is incredible. It's every single piece of music in that show is the exact same speed. I think it's just different flavors of this one speed of music. And it's it's weird. Um, when I was like nineteen twenty, my friend was making a film in the summer. He asked me to do some music for it, and in one of them, there, there was a scene where this character called the Temptress had to try to like, try to seduce someone, so he needed like slinky music for that. And then I was listening to the Twin Peaks soundtrack today. I was like, "That's what I did for that. That's what you do. You did that that weird jazzy fake brass stabby yeah. thing. It's so." I sent Sarah a thing earlier. Um, it's from Nicholas Jarre's Essential Mix. It's from 2012. And it's just Andrew Badamenti talking through writing oh, yeah. Bora's team. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but also playing along with it on the piano as he's talking about it. There's probably a YouTube clip of it separately. This is where I heard it. Mm. And it's like this five minutes of like pure creation. Like it's mm. it's like him. David Lynch is t- going, OK, so there's slow that down and then. Laura walks out of the woods and then Laura's team comes in and then you need to make it peak and it peaks and then he's like and now it needs to be incredibly beautiful and then it gets incredibly beautiful <laughs> and it's like you can hear the entire show in that like four minutes of just him describing David Lynch telling him what to do for the music mm. it's really really special it's one of those things where the sound of it makes so much sense and in fo- mm. I, like it's in conversation so tightly with the mood of the story you know, yeah. like Laura's theme is a is a perfect piece of music. Like it's mm. brilliant. 
And even all like the jazzy it, kind it, of diner music, like when you meet like, is it, I'm going to get the name, James Hurley is like the biker, right? Yeah. 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 So like all the music around him is like this. Swoony, like, cringy sort of. Like Ersatz kind of James Dean kind of thing, yeah, you know? Yeah. 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 It just works so well. It's, um, well and and yeah. that's, an, that's another thing actually about the third season as well, is that like in, in you know, the music plays, has, you know, the music has a really big role in, in, in season one and two. It kind of has very lit. It has a minor role in Firewalk With Me, apart from this kind of, there's like a big kind of music scene, which is really kind of horrible and, and, and sleazy and the kind of, kind of mm-hmm. penultimate scene really of the whole movie. Um, but then, like Lynch is so interested in music and, 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 and bands as well that he does, so he had mm-hmm. Julie Cruz, right, um, kind of as a performer in, in season two quite a bit. Well, she cropped up in season two quite a bit. She sang with the, the falling theme. Um, Oh, and, she's uh, such yeah. a sad song. Such yeah. a sad song. But then, but then in season, but then in season three, like I mean, the Roadhouse is the is the music venue, like again. Um, and at the end of every episode, they have a different band playing. They have a different band playing, so they had like Sharon Van Etten and Brilliant and the Chromatics and all of the end, like Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> yeah, Nine Inch yeah. Nails. Nine Inch Nails playing in the Roadhouse, but it just. So it, it, I just thought, I mean, again, this was like the whole form of the TV series. It was like, it's also a variety show. Yeah. He does it in Mulholland Drive as well, where he'll just let a full, like, diegetic song play out. Which is, re- I really love when things do that. We played a game recently um, called Kentucky Route Zero. I don't know if you're familiar, if you play it. games at all. Brilliant. But yeah, but they also do that thing where they will make you stop and watch someone sing a full five minute song. And <laughs> it's it, the whole game is quite... Twin Peaks and like a Southern Gothic kind of Twin Peaks thing as well. Heavily involved. I was very heavily informed by Twin Peaks. But just making you sit and take in a piece of music is a really powerful thing to do, I think. When you have such limited time in a show to go, we're going to do this. It says, (laughs) you're going to get the point of it after about 10 seconds, but we're going to make you sit through four minutes of it just because it's good and you will enjoy it. Nightingale did that every episode um, or every episode of Weather that they present Mm. the show as though and that's also another text that's really heavily like informed by Twin Peaks because it's this, you know, town environment. And every episode they pause it in the middle and now the weather and the weather's always a song by a different band. Right. And Jukebox energy is really nice. Mm. Mm. Another another one actually that seems to have because well myself and my wife are kind of different stages in it um, is Tannis and Tannis is like I, I don't know if you've listened mm. to it but it's like we're big yeah. Tannis head big head we, yeah. we have the t-shirts literally I yeah. had a black tapes listening party here one time years ago like yeah oh, big <laughs> big all day house yeah yeah but it's but it is but it is interesting I mean like because when I was, when I started listening to Tannis I was like. Oh right, yeah. So what they're talking about—that's the Black Lodge. What they're talking about there, and that's the you know, and mm. and I mean, I know he's pulling kind of they're pulling all the mythology from everywhere and wrapping it up into one. But a big chunk of it is is Twin Peaks oh, mythology. Absolutely, yeah. like that yeah. portal. So that that set up. Like I mean, it's for me what it ties back to is like this book that I feel like you know everyone's like the book that made me do art or whatever, like the the formative text. Um, I always say it's Twin Peaks, but it's actually The Magician's Nephew by C.S. Lewis. Um, and in the beginning of The Magician's Nephew, um, which is like pre-Narnia, we have this sequence of this boy and this girl walking through a place called the Woods Between Worlds, which is a wood where the ground is full of these portals, these pools, right? These dark, liquid, shining, oil-like pools. 
And when you go into one of them, you go to a different location. You go somewhere else. Any a world that's dying, you know, I think he describes like a sun, like a like a like a squeezed orange or like a fat red orange and like something like that. Like a dying world, a world that's only being born. All these pools in the forest lead you to different places. And of course, Twin Peaks, the way that you get to the Black Lodge is through this dark pool of oil mm. in a circle of sycamore trees mm. in the woods somewhere. And that feels like a very old concept, you know? Mm. It feels like a deeply ancient piece of folklore as opposed to just something David Lynch kind of vibed out. Yeah, yeah. And like completely witchy as well. Oh, yeah. Super yeah, yeah, hundred percent with you. Oh, like it's a fairy ring kind of principle. Yeah, yeah. like we have, we we have it. We know. Yeah, we know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Emily <laughs> Blunt is jumping into one right now. Fucking Bagara, <laughs> <laughs> like. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's a it's a very frightening concept as well. You know, like this idea of like this, the lodges aren't friendly places, which mm. I think is a very um. They manage to be neutral in kind of how frightening they are, you know, like the convenience store landscape that we see with the woodsmen in, in the third season is malign. And that's where you're going to go and die. It's terrible. But the yeah. Red Room is sort of it's frightening, but it's neutral, you know, like it's not threatening. Is it? I don't know. The Red Room has become iconic as well. But I also I don't find it deliberately a scary place. I think it's just mm. there's something about it, but I can I've never been able to put my finger on it. Yeah, um, it's yeah. Well, I mean, it, yeah, it is kind of it's it's neutral because it's it, it's a kind of a like it's a gateway, you know. It's like um, it's like the airport or something. Yeah, isn't it? Like people are people are coming and going, you know. Um, people yeah. are arriving and then like they're arriving in one way and then they're leaving another way, um, and some of them, you know, have no choice but to like they're they're going to be pulled back there at some point, um. But uh, but yeah, I mean, some of some of it definitely, like some of it definitely baffled me. Now I have to say, though, early on, uh, the uh, in 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 the red room in season three, the uh, you know the tree that had the yeah, the, the arm or whatever. It's it's Mike's it's, arm. It, it, it referred to, to itself as the as Mike's arm. Yeah, yeah. there's a tree with some kind of organ, head type organ. Uh, yeah. It sort of whispers at us for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah, sort of just makes yeah. a bunch of little noises. Yeah. And there's subtitles. Yeah. But this is, you know, isn't this, but, but I mean, this is, you know, one of the great things about it. And it was, and it was one of the great things about the, the, the original TV series as well, is that like he, he managed to get people to allow him to do this um, yeah. to a kind of a large, you know, for a large public audience. And, uh, and kind of, you know, and kind of present things that people actually did completely have the patience to sit through and really enjoy. Like, I mean, when I went, when, when I was looking back on, on season two, like a few years back, it was, you know, I was really surprised at how slow it was. Yeah. You know? It's like a really slow TV show. And I was asked my friend Simon about it. And I was like, oh, that's really slow, isn't it? You know, and I don't remember it being that slow. He said, no, it was really slow then as well. Mm. I think that's part of the reason why when we we flew through season one and then knew that the consensus with does with season two was a lot worse. But there's eight episodes of season one and twenty two episodes of season two, so we were like, 
are we going to commit to this? Should we wait and see and come back? And I think that's why we never actually went back to it. But I think I will. It's good. Insist. Yeah. Even to see Maddie. Yeah. So they do something really interesting mm. with it where they bring back the actress, uh, Cheryl Lee, who plays uh, Laura Palmer. They bring her back for a second turn, but not playing Laura. She's playing Laura's cousin, mm. Maddie, in a wig. And what the cast in what the characters do with Maddie is really complicated and really sad. Like mm. Maddie has a terrible time because she has immediately stepped into the role of this dead girl, even though she's mm. older than her and different to her. It's never for a second assumed that she's a separate character. It's like, oh, look, we have a Laura, you know, mm-hmm. and it's only in her killing that we see what happened. Like she sort of becomes the conduit like, or like a shadow Laura that we can see what happened to Laura through. Mm. You know, mm. and that story is really, really compelling. Now, after we get through the whodunit bit, it is all bananas, following short plot threads through different people's lives. Um, James goes off and like has a whole journey on the road, uh, where where he ends up shacking up with this much like older millionaire older woman, woman in a kind of wooden castle in the forest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, bananas. But what happens to Cooper is really compelling, and mm. uh, Heather Graham's character annie is really scary as well mm. so yeah I think she is norma's is she norma's sister yeah 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 so she comes in and then Coop, and then cooper falls in love with her uh which is interesting because he couldn't fall in love with audrey but he but he falls in love with he falls in love with annie yeah. um um yeah it's, i mean it's more like this is that, the, what's interesting really about the second season beyond the kind of symbolism and the kind of the crack that they had that whoever was directing it is having with it, um, is actually kind of, it's his journey and the backfilling of his story with like the Windermore character as well. Um, you know, which is this really dark, kind of represents this pretty dark period from he was Cooper's partner. And um, he was his FBI partner at one point. And it's this kind of dark period of Cooper's life. And he comes back then and is playing this really kind of dark kind of chess game with yeah. Cooper that's kind of, he kind of becomes villain, like the villain that we can see in the series, mm. right? Yeah. Where Bob is this sort of, I can't believe that's the first time we brought Bob up. Um, <laughs> whereas Bob is just this abstract fucking terror machine who's like waiting at the end of your bed to like eat all of the goodness from your fucking selfhood. Um, yeah. Windermere presents something a bit more tangible, I think. Yeah. I think just on the Bob thing, though, um, I actually think the, the like one of the most amazing things about the third season was uh, Kyle MacLachlan embodying Bob as as Mister C. I mean, on oh, evil coop, bad uh, coop, evil, bad coop terrifying. Okay, <laughs> uh, well, I have a re- I think I've brought this up a few times in this podcast. Is I have a very very high sensitivity to a bad wig. Like I am, I see a bad wig, the movie's over. All I can see is the wig. I'm just watching the wig walking around. That's yeah. it. I'm just looking at the wig. I permitted the bad wig on Evil Coop because yeah. he was so fucking upsetting. Yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was bad. Terrible, it was a terrible haircut as well. Oh, it was a terrible scary. wig. Yeah. Like, you genuinely believe that he could do fucking anything. He could yeah. just do anything. Like, he's a really compelling, frightening villain. Yeah. Yeah, and the voice. What? What did, oh, it's fucking horrible voice. What did yeah. you think of what they did with Diane? Because Diane is set up in the first season as this brilliant, invisible mystery woman, right? Yeah. 
Mm. And then when we meet her, <laughs> she's so different from what I expected her to be. Oh, like, Laura is fabulous, but she's so different from the Diane I built in my head. Yeah, you know? I, I mean, I don't know what I had in my head for, for, for Diane, probably somebody, you know, very wholesome FBI secretary or something like very that. Very wholesome, right? But, I had you know, a very wholesome, like, I've, I, I went for a job when I first moved to California as a um, secretary for a private investigator. I was like, I'm going to be fucking Diane. Like, <laughs> I, I have worked so many get secretary a, a jobs. I'm fucking, I'm a minimum wage, but I'm Diane now. Like, I had totally romanticized, like, administrative transcription roles. <laughs> Like beyond reasonable belief to be Diane. Turning up and in California then, with your box of Cooper tapes and your CV. Oh my God. <laughs> I was just like, this is my, I took the, went for the job off of Craigslist, like writing a cover letter, like I'm a novelist. Absolutely. The mistake number one, telling the private investigator that you're a fucking novelist. Like no way. <laughs> Such an idiot child. But you know, dream big. But uh, what Laura Dern does with Diane is so different to and it's brilliant it's very totally realized and very sad yeah you know what did you yeah. think that after ha having come having known and felt a presence of a diane as a teenager how did you feel about that realization of her as an adult so like in, initially like completely unexpected right probably like everybody else it's like oh my god what this creation but then of course it's laura dern so she turns it into this completely convincing creation within 20 seconds and then actually because because he used season three to really go back into the detail of Cole and um, and Albert and the Blue Rose cases and all Albert and all of that stuff that actually Diane just made perfect sense then you know in that so this is this this is just this really wild corner of the FBI here like it's not even the X Files it's like this is just like the real outpost and all the all the best people who also happen to be the biggest headbangers are just all collected in this corner. Uh, and Poor, Diane Tommy, is man. Poor Tommy. Poor like, Tommy. Like, imagine going for the role of Tommy in season three, who's another kind of FBI agent who sort yeah. of just yeah. gets muscled in, where your sole purpose in the show is to have Laura Dern to tell you, fuck you, Tommy. Like, you're so... <laughs> the only thing that I quantifiably remember about this lovely young brunette actress sitting beside David Lynch as this junior FBI agent is just Laura Dern seething at her for the whole thing. It's, it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. That actress actually, she's. I think she's a country singer. No way. I think she's a country that singer that, that David Lynch saw and was like, I have a role for you. Of course. David yeah. Lynch, who is like 75, has a three-year-old daughter. He's <laughs> <You know? laughs> married like four times. Like, I bet he saw that country singer and was like, will you be in my TV show? No problem. Yeah. No problem, yeah. David. Absolutely. Um. But no, she was great, and then it's kind of, But then it's really, I mean, you know, then the, then when Coop and her go over the, when they kind of go over the line, the kind of electricity line, you know, yeah, yeah. And it's like if they kind of got into some other dimension, and then they and they, and they and, and, again, Alan, cover your ears, but like, but then they sleep, you know. I don't think the plot is that. Plot is this? Plot is this? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then they sleep with each other. It's like, all oh, right, okay, but their names are different then. Yeah, we're really just going to do this, though. Like, yeah. we're really just going to have Coop and Diane. Like, yeah. that's it. But then you have this horrible parallel thread of um, what bad Coop does to Diane, which is f 
fucking horrible. And I mm. found really personally shattering because, mm. you know, Coop is this romantic figure in season one, right? He's really young. He's really, really, really young. And, you know, Audrey is mad about him, you know? And he's like obviously deeply charismatic and everyone sort of follows him through this bizarre journey that he's going on. He's a saint, right? This is, I think that's a perfect allegory, right? He's mm. Saint Coop. And I know Audrey's mad about him, but he's like, no, you're too young. Like, he's so wholesome, right? And then when he, with Annie, Annie makes more sense. And, like, he, he's got a lot of innocence to him, right? So the other thread is this private relationship that he has with Diane, right? So he's sort of conferring all of this privacy to Diane. And, and the, the lovely writing of it is that we, you know, we see him just being like oh drive these fir trees are beautiful and that's how he enters the town like she is a, a narrative framing device so we expect well we don't fucking expect laura dern in a terrifying wig being fucking super mad and telling everyone that like she hates them but we also don't expect the sexual violence that we see with um bad cooper or like bob in cooper's body in the third mm. season which is i found that really really hard when i saw it i was just like no don't <laughs> no, yeah don't but but it was very total to do that because obviously lynch knows how we all felt about that ghost of diane and mm. he unghosts her he makes her so real and so integral to the plot mm. that he like subject her to horrendous violence. He has her redeem herself. Like he gives her a world and he gives her power and control. Mm. And it's not easy like to mm. watch. You know, I yeah. think and, and of all of them as well, she's been the one that's been most affected by the interim period of the twenty five years, right? Like she you know yeah. because Albert and, and and Cole like just like they just haven't seen him. They just don't know where he is. He's like he's you know, he's gone. But she's left with this violence. Yeah. Mm. And this idea that her Cooper did something really unforgivable to her, you know, mm. so that's a really compelling story in terms of like how they handle what the consequences are of Bob possessing Cooper's body. That mm. there is a shadow trail of story where we all believe Cooper to be this superhero, but the actions of a bad Cooper are irrevocable. Because mm. he's a chaos monster and he will do literally the worst thing. He will do whatever he fucking wants, you know. Oh, he's oh, he's such a, I mean, he's such a like repulsive but compelling villain, you mm. know. Yeah, like, yeah. I suppose he's, like, he's, yeah, he's properly satanic, but like not in a, but not in a kind of a comic book way. No, no, he's properly like he's interested exclusively in serving his own needs and his own hunger at any cost. Mm. And he delights in a very particular kind of torture and chaos. Like he's a a really foul villain. Like he would be the the thing I would worry about. I did. I know you said earlier that you're like like try not to interpret Lynch. I don't know if you've watched this, but I did in fact give five hours of my life to a five hour long YouTube video, where that is a thing that exists. Unpacking and deconstructing Twin Peaks. Um, it was one of those things where I was like, am I really going to gonna sit through the, absolutely sat through the whole thing. Right. Um, unpacking. Time works differently for YouTube videos. So. But it's really, like, it's, it's yeah. all bollocks because you can't, you can't decide what David Lynch means at any point. Like, it's, it's kind of deliberately constructed in that way. Um, but this guy had unpacked a lot of 
or built a theory around what Bob is, what Laura is, what the message is of Twin Peaks. Like, what mm. is Twin Peaks about is the big question, right? The mm. short answer is who killed Laura Palmer? Who killed the homecoming queen? The big answer is much bigger than that. And this guy tries to <laughs> fire a shot at what this whole thing really means. Like, what is the what is the thesis under it? You know, what is Lynch trying to say? Um, which I won't go into because I don't know if it's right or wrong. It's compelling, but I don't think it's useful here. Um, mm. But I, I did think a lot afterwards about Bob and that particular kind of evil and what that... Uh, what fears that left me with? Like, did this show freak you out as a teenager, Simon? You know, like, um, uh, no, no, the show didn't freak me out. I think Firewalk with Me freaked me out because when I was watching it again, I remembered the kind of like you know, and again, it came down to kind of it came down to really particular pieces of imagery. Actually, you know, like I think like one like like one of the most upsetting things in a film ever is her looking at that painting of the angels, the angel feeding breakfast to a child that's on her wall and she's looking at it and she's, and, 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 and she's about to leave her house to go out on that, I think on that prostitution uh, job. And, uh, and she looks at it and the angel disappears from the painting. It's like, you know, oh my God, um, it's just really, Naked like, and bleak. it's just like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Nope. And she's just kind of like, <laughs> You know, it's just that, that, that kind of Cheryl Lee, like oh, the half-open mouth, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, but it didn't. So no, like I mean, the TV series didn't freak, freak me out. But I mean, the the thing on interpretation is funny, you know, um, because like yeah, I I know like I know it feels like such a puzzle box that people are compelled to try and figure it out and they're trying to try and figure out the symbolism, and that's as much about you know. What what they enjoy doing as, as as anything else, but I mean, I genuinely think I mean it was the same. It was really the same with Mulholland Drive and with with Lost Highway when he started messing with time kind of properly in his movies. Like I think he was, I think he was really creating things that were um, that that he didn't know where they were going either. You know that he was really really allowing himself to be guided by by a kind of by an aesthetic and a narrative instinct. Um, without feeling too compelled to kind of wrap it up in in a form, and so that's why I kind of like I nearly kind of like I'm really tempted to all the time, but I kind of avoid reading articles even even about the stuff because it's um you know it's so much about tone, it's so much about sound, like so much of it is about sound. Um, yeah. Uh, you know that I mean even even the scene at the even the scene at the end of Firework with me when. Um, after Leland has killed Laura and, and the camera is basically from her eyes and he's putting all this kind of uh, clear plastic over her and you know mm-hmm. it's, like it's an ASMR thing probably for some people but it's like well, what a brilliant way to end it yeah. like what a fucking yeah. horrible way to end it you know like because that's where we meet her of course that's where we leave her you know yeah like, and it's, it's plastic so it kind of finishes with that sound of plastic you know and then and that's where that's Pete, the first that's thing we hear the first thing we hear in this in the show is um Pete Martel going yeah. wrapped in like it's a girl on the beach wrapped in plastic. Wrapped you know? in plastic, yeah, yeah. Like it's yeah. so I think so 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 I, I think um yeah, I for me like it, it was and especially as a teenager as well, looking at the looking at the, the, the first season, um it was just 
you know, I, I would have been just a, a wash in all of the imagery and the, the style and the, you know, and the sound of it, um, yeah. and the kind of and the mystery and and I mean mystery is mystery ceases to be mystery when you solve it, right? Yeah, like it's a that's the thing, and the fact that the, a TV show is permitted to exist like this, where I, I don't I don't think we get this anymore, right? So like say Riverdale, which you mentioned earlier, which is just like a neon baby of Twin Peaks, you know, mm. you're gonna solve the mystery. It's mm. right there. You know, like it's right there in front of you. And yeah. I think the layers of obfuscation and the Vaseline on the camera lens and the, the soft tone of the mystery, um, it all and all of that contains with the soundscapes and everything. Um, I don't know if that can exist now. Mm. I think people like things to be clean. Yeah. And I think they like them to be neat and finished. Like, I think uh, watching Russian Doll, I felt, was kind of hopeful because it was like, oh, well, she walks under a bridge and um, who knows what happens, you know? Like, there, there's an ambiguity there. But I think, I, I, I do wonder if the days of ambiguity in, in visual storytelling, like TV and cinema, is gone. Mm. Like The Leftovers did a very good job. I haven't seen season three of The Leftovers, but season oh, one and two yeah. do a lot of weird things. There's one episode in particular which takes place entirely in a... Like when the main character dies and then wakes up in a hotel where he has to assassinate someone. And it, it's all in this like other place as well, which is obviously is very Twin Peaks. The Leftovers? The left, yeah, the Leftovers. I is not fantastic. This is, yeah. I'll take it wherever it is. I'll go looking for it. Like I will actively mm. seek out this energy. It's just a matter of mm. like, like every, I feel like everything I look for, I'm always looking for that feeling, that really particular feeling of watching Twin Peaks for the first time and being just both very lost and very at home at the same time. Mm. I think as well it's the I think as well it's the it's the playfulness and the childishness that he allows his characters to inhabit is a really yeah. is, is a really important thing, you know, like I mean you get you know, like you have characters like like Andy and Lucy. Uh Ed and Ed and these people like and you were kinda of, like, you know, like you really um like you really fall in love with them all really quickly you know he honors all the different kinds of people who live there yeah you know and mm. that le so that levity doesn't feel shoehorned yeah because there's yeah. lots of weirdos in Twin Peaks you know yeah it's not just uh, fucking Lucy and Andy you know it's there's more gradients of, of of how to be a person in Twin Peaks so that when we see the really heavy stuff mm. we're kind of able for it yeah yeah, even in just like season one, thinking back on it, the amount of characters you get to know in those eight episodes on top of this big, very involved, complicated story. Like Josie? It really is. It's a massive achievement. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. It really is. It's ben everyone. And ben and Jerry, the brothers with the brie and butter, like sandwiches, yeah. like yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Like they, like I think what I, the way I initially try, I remember watching the first episode with my dad my parents got me the DVD box set after going through a breakup when I was very, very young, sort of first boyfriend situation. I was very sad. So my dad was like, this will distract you. Oh, he had no idea how much it distracted me <laughs> in the long run. Um, so he got me this lovely, the box set was blue and it had Laura in the thing. I had no idea what it was. So I watched the first episode with him and he was just like, look, I was kind of getting a bit antsy. I was like, I don't fucking know. This is a bit long. You know, it's, uh, why, who are all these people? And he was like, this is everyone who Laura met. 
So the reason that we see all of these characters and we get to know all these freaks is because Laura moved through everyone's lives mm. in some way. You know, yeah. very few of them are strangers to Laura. Like Laura is still at the nexus of this. Like even when we meet, what's his name? Who has the orchids? I can't, I can never think of his name. Oh. Uh, she brought in the Meals on Wheels. Um, yeah. Yeah, he's a he's um he's he's a he's a recluse. He lives by himself, and he's in love with her. And Tremaine, is it that? No, that's the grandmother. Harry, something. Harry? No, that's the, the sheriff. Harry begins Truman. with a H. Harold. It's Harold. Harold. I think it's yeah, Harold. Harold. Yeah, Harold. Um, gosh, David Lynch, you sure do only have a bunch of names there. Right? <laughs> um, you know, we 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 get to know these characters in relationship to the mystery of Laura. Right? Is that mm. we're moving through the town and discovering who she was to these people and why everyone loved her, you know? Mm. Yeah, Harold, is a, Harold is, 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 is a really, like, that's a very kind of sad, small story inside yeah. it, isn't it? It's, uh, yeah. yeah, and he's in Firewalk with me as well, actually. The kind of, I think the last time she sees him is, is, is in it as well. Because um, he has her diary, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And she tells him, she tells him that, uh, she, she's telling him that Bob is real. Because she's realised that it's that it's Leland, you know. There is even that, even when Leland, even when Leland dies, um, you know, like that's a, you know, as, as horrific a character as he was in it, he's kind of nearly like redeemed at the end as well. Like I mean, because you know, because Bob is Bob is gone from him after Bob has made him kill himself, and he's just kind of expiring on the floor, um, and he starts talking, and it's like this. I mean, that actor is it Ray? What Ray Wise? I think. Um, I mean, it's this amazing kind of piece of acting, uh, and you're just like, and you and you're really affectionate for Leland, you know, at the yeah. end of at the end of his life. Because he's suddenly cleansed, right? Yeah, and he and, and he's and he knows everything that's happened, and and he dies of it. Like, is not yeah. it? Like, that's how I've always perceived it. Is that like when Bob leaves Leland and reveals to him the extent of his crimes, mm. the shame kills him. Yeah. Like he dies of the reality of the violence that he's enacted on his daughter, mm. and that's what gets him in the end. You know yeah. that he literally dies in the living room floor, in front of everybody, very soapily. Mm. You know, in this instance of truth, the truth kills mm. Lena, and it's helpful and kind of handy, you know, for the story. <laughs> mm-hmm. But he, um, it's sh- it's a shattering moment. You know, yeah. it's really like. Because they they aren't afraid of just casually throwing incest around the story, because as we see with Audrey and her dad and that weird face off that I mentioned earlier in mm. One Eye Jack, um, so to actually have him have all these realizations is really like, or it's not in the living room. Where does he? Does he die in prison? Like there is a really yeah. I can see it on the floor. Yeah, it's in a jail. It's in, it's in a it's in a jail. It's in the jail on the ground. Yeah, the sprinklers are going and it's kind of yeah. There's a cleansing sort of rain yeah. vibe going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, but yeah, that, it's it's astonishing. It's um, and I don't think we'll see it again. Um, and I think we'll see many offspring from it. Mm. And I'm really relieved, both for your teenage self and my teenage self, that this third season was such a triumph. Yeah, um, thank God. <laughs> thank fucking God. I wouldn't go near the modern X Files. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. No. Just don't try serve. To- Cut off cut hard off at season six doesn't exist after that yeah and let alone the one they brought it a couple of years ago but um you know it was a real execution of something beautiful and Mm. 
I I think people can try, but I don't think that they'll hit it again. Yeah, we'll just have to hope that he um, we'll just have to hope that he maybe manages to pull another one out of the bag. Something, <laughs> um, yeah. You know? One more tune, Lynch. Come on, yeah, one yeah. more. Because and it, and it, and it remains. I mean, like you know, and he leaves it so like I mean, he leaves it so open ended. You know, um, like he leaves it so open ended. Uh, one thing I did read, and I don't know if it's true, is that um, you know that in in that in that kind of final moment when they're at when they're at Laura's house and uh, different people live there. That's remember, the real you know, woman who owns the, the house. The real woman who owns the house. The real lady <laughs> who owns the real Palmer household. Yeah, answers the door to Cooper. Yeah. And she's like, what year is it? And it's just like, oh, I don't know, bitch. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah. know what year it is. Oh, yeah. it's so good. So good. Yeah. yeah. Come here, we're about to come up on an hour and a half, Simon. So we're going to My gonna goodness gracious. <laughs> dear. No, Simon, drink Thank taken. you so much. Thank you. We could yeah. do this for another hour. Let's just start. Yeah, yeah easily. Um, uh, plug something for us. Plug something for it. Yeah. What? Where can people find you? What's what? Plug, plug away. Plug, plug something. Um, well, go to Molly uh, when it opens. Uh, yeah, go to Molly when it opens, the Museum of Literature Ireland, uh, where uh, I spend most of my time hiding up in my office. Um, but uh, yeah, come in. We're hopefully well. It's it's uh, what's it what's it now? It's, it's November, so hopefully we'll be opening uh, back open in December. Um, but at any rate, keep an eye out for when we do and come back in. Lots of great exhibitions. There'll be places to hang out. Um, I would recommend following them on social media. Their social media presence is very buoyant and full of lots of interesting literary things. And their shop carries gorgeous stuff. If we're getting around the festive season, the shop carries a great selection of books and lovely Irish handmade goods. Loads of things. And actually, yeah, and our our shop is just online now as well. We have a lot of, we we, we stock a lot of Irish crafts and Irish makers and uh, very strict about that stuff, which is really good. So um, we're pushing all that stuff out. So yeah, do visit the shop and and then come in and, you know, have a really nice cup of coffee and slice of pie when the it's cafe opens again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, Sarah, where can we find you? Oh, you know, on Twitter. Um, <laughs> just tweeting. Um, my books are in bookshops. I tweet at Grifsky. Alan, what about you? Uh, I'm Alan under Ms. Oh, oh my God. I'm Alan underscore McGuire everywhere. Uh, Juvenalia is Juvenalia underscore pod on Twitter. Juvenalia pod on Instagram. We have a Patreon with bonus episodes we will do another bonus episode soon about Hades I think because mm-hmm. we, we've both played that and liked it a lot um, thank you to Dean McDonald for our artwork uh, hello to Ellen we miss you and thank you to uh, Every Tall Tales for having us go listen to some other Tall Tales podcasts um, right now Tall Tales have launched a new thing called Broadcast where they are now launching premium series mini series of podcasts so there's a limited um six episode i think series of mother of pod that you can pay five euro for on top of their regular one so that's a very exciting new development it's a good way to so make sure that people well who make their podcasts get to actually live off of their podcasts it's a great way yeah good on Cassie. also much like the creep dive we are thinking about doing totes and exactly like the creep dive we're going to have it up in the air for probably about four months before we do it yeah so stay tuned for those as well yeah we'll mention those every week until they happen as well so i think that's it thank you so much simon o'connor thank you so much thanks a million and we'll see you in two weeks everybody Bye. bye